Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our session on Malaysian finance. Apologies for such a professional and official title. Uh. Fun fact, Mr. Sunny initially wanted to name this session Rojak Finance. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I figured that it's a little bit too informal, so we settled with uh, Malaysian Finance instead. Uh. I mean, Han, would, would, would Rojak Finance be a better name than Malaysian Finance? What do you think? Maybe given the nature, it's something like, uh, you know, finance minggu ini or something, right? Because there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. In the past week, in the past week. The, yeah. So the maybe, la, maybe. But uh, I, think, I think we'll stick with Malaysian finance. Uh. Yeah, we have two familiar speakers here with us tonight. They have joined us for more than three sessions. Han, he's the director, founder, ex-CEO of Ring It Plus. He used to be on the dark side of the force. He worked as an investment banker quite a few years back decided to quit the industry and help consumers make better financial decisions. Han, welcome to the session. Hey, thanks for the, thanks for the kind intro. Yeah, so uh, hopefully the you know, brief introduction has somewhat done you justice. But for, just, for, for, for those people who don't know you in the crowd, do you want to just explain quickly a, a bit more about what you do? Sure, sure, sure. Um, evening, everyone. Uh, thanks, Shinji, for the quick intro. Uh, yes, I was an investment banker. That was over 15, 16, 17 years ago already. Uh, very complicated structures, quantitative stuff, right before the crisis. This is not COVID crisis. Uh. This is global financial crisis in 07, 08. Um, did that for a while. I came back in 2010 to Malaysia and started uh, 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 Ring It Plus uh, uh, with you know, some co-founders. Uh, for those who do, you don't know, Ringgit Plus is Malaysia's now largest uh, Malaysian financial uh, aggregator education, you know, and we're also a huge financially financial literacy advocate here in Malaysia. Uh, I'm also a licensed financial planner, uh, and uh, most recently, uh, 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 also a investment manager. So you know, uh, as you know, uh, I guess. Some qualification to talk about consumer finance stuff, but also you know how it affects your 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 investments, your investment strategy, etc. Uh, yes, I'm ex CEO, so I'm I'm still I'm still uh, involved somewhat with uh, Ring It Plus, but I don't do day to day stuff anymore. So I have time to attend these kind of spaces, and working on another few side projects here and there, uh, as well as you know doing some angel investing. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Han. Uh, we also have uh, Mr. Sunny, economist, certified financial planner. Yeah, actually both of these speakers are qualified financial planners. He is a frequent commentator of the media. You probably would have heard or seen him if you're from Singapore. Unfortunately, I think most of us are from Malaysia, so probably we haven't heard from him before. Uh, he can be a bit grumpy at times. Mr. Sunny, welcome back to the session. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, you may also want to, you know, take a moment or two to talk about yourself lah, for those people who don't yet know you. Oh, okay. Um, okay, I'll start off by saying um, I'm, I'm a Malaysian um, working in Singapore, but I came down a very long time ago after my SPM uh, in the uh, late, uh, late, late 80s. So I've been here for about 30 over years, settled down here, still Malaysian, uh, working in the financial advisory uh, uh, industry. I'm an investment director for the firm I'm working with now. Um, so I do asset allocation. Um, uh, I look at alternative investments, things that, that basically um, I feel 
uh, are suitable for our clients and such. Um, I have been in the finance finance industry for the longest time. Uh, prior to this, I was working with um, uh, a ratings agency, uh, Standard and Poor's Ratings. I was a sovereign sovereign analyst covering countries, um, coincidentally including Malaysia. Um, and throughout my career, it's been a lot of uh, more on the research side. Um, uh, with several security houses, research firms, uh, foreign research firms, and such. Yeah, so that's about it. Yeah, as you guys have heard, both of these speakers are extremely qualified to tackle the, the topics that we're about to discuss tonight. We'll talk about Malaysia's EPF crisis and the controversial thoughts on whether the retirement age should be increased. Then we'll transition into the recent surprise OPR hike by Bank Nagara Malaysia. Finally, if we still have time, we will settle with ASB and ASM. Are they still good investments or not? Uh, just a quick disclaimer, whatever we say tonight should not and cannot be considered financial advice, despite the qualifications of these speakers. Huh? It is based on our own opinions and for educational purposes only. Now let's dive right into the first topic. PM Anwar has recently reviewed the alarmingly low EPF savings of Malaysians. He said that, as of December last year, only 19% of EPF members had reached the basic savings target of 240,000 ringgit to retire by 55. Now, even that amount wouldn't be enough uh, because, you know, if you divide it across 20 years, you only have 1,000 ringgit per month. 3.2 million out of 12.78 million EPF members, now this is figures as of June last year, which is about one in four people, they are currently at the critically low savings threshold of 10,000 ringgit in their accounts. That adds up to about 42 ringgit per month for the next 20 years. Because of this, many people they have proposed solutions, with the most notable one being, should the retirement age be increased? Yeah, so let's tackle this question. Han, what do you think about this very controversial, juicy topic? Is increasing the retirement age an appropriate solution Good, good, good start off, I think, um, um, on this juicy topic indeed. Uh, I guess a little anecdote. Uh, France recently tried to do this, right? I think President Macron in France tried to do this, uh, raise the statutory minimum retirement age from 62 to 64, and then what ensued was very, very French, which is people just went on the streets and protested and burned some cars down. Uh, so, that, I mean, if you know anything about France, it's very, very typical, very, very so typical French. Uh, but closer to home, I think there was a statement around um, uh, increasing retirement age uh, above 60 uh, here in Malaysia. Right now, in Malaysia, for those of you who don't know, the statutory retirement age is 60. Uh, actually, I personally think um, um, most people misunderstand this. Right? Actually, you can retire anytime. You can just stop working right? and then uh, you enjoy life lah, after that if you have enough money. Right. But the thing about retirement being at 60 actually gives power in the hands of companies rather than people, right? At 60, it doesn't matter how healthy or unhealthy or how good performer or how bad performer you are, a uh, company can just, you know, uh, uh, retire you, essentially. I don't say the word fire. I say the word retire you because, you know, they're not, no longer obligated to, to, to have you working after 60. So actually increasing the retirement age is actually very pro-worker, right? If you want to work past 60, your company can't just simply fire you just because you turn 60. If the retirement age was, say, 65, right? They, they will have to wait till 65 before they, 
I don't see the word fire again. Uh, before they retire you. So actually increasing uh, the retirement age is actually a pro-worker, pro-employee because then it, 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 it allows people who want to work past 60 to work past 60. Uh, and right now, the decision is not fully within their hands. So that's one, one part about it. Uh, uh, if we're talking purely about this retirement age thing. Um, having said that, right, I think the bigger issue is that, uh, 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 that I guess people should be uh, or are more concerned about is uh, uh, the minimum age in which you're allowed to uh, touch your EPF money. Like, and that one, I guess, is, is less about uh, flexibility for workers to work if they want to, uh, but more about you know, uh, limiting access to my own money. Right? So there's a couple of things there. Yeah, good points you mentioned there like, about it being pro-employee. Uh, there's also a proposal to increase the EPF full withdrawal age from 55 to 60. Just your brief thoughts on that. Um, it, it really shouldn't be as hot a potato as it is, you know, because uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I, I'm going to give away my age a bit here, but uh, for both the private sector and the government sector, uh, retirement age was raised... 260 in 2012-2013 and I think that would have been a good time to just also done done the same with EPF and say hey look we're gonna what's the better word to use streamline no Manilaraskan Manilaraskan is streamline streamline synchronize we're gonna synchronize this decision allow people to work longer but also since you're you're allowed to work longer why not we just uh, also move EPF to age of 60 uh, where you can take out the full amount uh, and then there will be no issue because, right? well, it's just it's, you move it at the same time. But now they waited 10 years, it hasn't happened. So we're in this strange situation where uh, statutory, statutory retirement age is 60, but uh, EPF withdrawal age is 55. So I think they've created this hot potato for themselves. I think, you know, as a matter of principle, there's no issue with having the same, uh, uh, you know, retirement age as well as, uh, you know, ability to access retirement funds at reti- statutory retirement age. La. But now it's become a big issue because they didn't do it 10 years ago. Yeah, it is actually quite a big issue, la, which is why we need to discuss about it tonight. Uh, Mr. Sunny, same yeah. question. Thoughts about raising the retirement age. Do you want to work longer, la, Mr. Sunny? Because how old are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, way, the way my kids are are draining me of my savings, I think I do have to work longer. <laughs> um, maybe, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always remember a couple of years ago, I was invited uh, for a luncheon with um, a visiting uh, economist. Um, and this was the uh, chief economist of a large insurance company, a large US insurance company. So there was myself and a few other economists uh, um, having lunch with him. And, and he kind of straightforward, I mean, we were talking about retirement and, and because he's from the insurance side, uh, we talk about retirement and, and the uh, the boomers retiring and such. And he was very straightforward. He's very uh, forthcoming. He was saying like, look, um, there's no way that the US and many other Western countries can sustain uh, the payouts um, with the coming generation that's retiring. Um, he said, it's really a question of, of pushing back that retirement age. Uh, it's just that no administration, whether it's Republican or, or Democrat, uh, is, they are willing to do it because it's politically suicidal and we saw that in France. Um, so across the world, um, I think especially in the Western Western world, um, we have this kind of um, retirement time bomb uh, 
Um, and similarly now in, in, let's say, for example, in Malaysia, same thing. Um, uh, ought not to have been the case, but unfortunately it is, um, given the various withdrawals and, and so on, um, that I think it's inevitable that eventually the retirement age has to be pushed back. And I think Han brought, Han brought up a, a very valid reason, uh, valid um, viewpoint, which is as a worker, as an employee, employee um, it may not be a bad thing. Um, you know, so it gives you an opportunity. If you want to work longer, uh, you have that ability to do so because uh, you, you're allowed to do so, so to say. Yeah, another interesting point that um, I think all of us left out is that people are just generally living longer these days, right? The life expectancy is much higher. Um, medical advancements is way advanced compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, uh, but I would say the, the more controversial side of things is that who would actually hire the elderly, right? Because if I'm an employer personally, uh, I would honestly just hire the young as they are more keen to learn and they can be paid way less. Essentially, they can be exploited like, in a sense. And when you have the elderly to work, let's say over 62, you raise their retirement age to 65, who would still want to you know, hire them? At the end of the day, is this really pro-employee or pro-employer? I'm just saying you can take this first, huh? I guess it depends on the type of work. Um, you do see um, in Singapore a lot of elderly now working in McDonald's and, and places like that. Um, but fact of the matter is, um, increasingly demographically, uh, you will have more and more elderly versus um, 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 the younger population. Um, unless your uh, your immigration policy or your foreign worker policy allows you to bring in less skilled workers and such, I think we could see the elderly uh, take up a little bit more of this kind of um, McDonald type of work. Um, you know, the youngsters eventually will probably move up the scale and, and, and do something else. You know, they don't typically do this as a full-time kind of job, you know, stuff like that. So I do think there are pockets of um, uh, 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 job opportunities which will suit uh, the elderly. Yeah. In fact, um, even even things like I remember uh, during COVID, we had these kind of COVID ambassadors, uh, uh, people going around checking whether we were wearing a mask or not, and even elderly were doing it and so on. So there will always, I think, be opportunities for them. Yeah, those are simpler jobs. And funny thing you mentioned is that uh, and with McDonald's, you know, they can actually serve as the cashiers. So imagine if you were to start at a young age at McDonald's, then transition into your career and then end with McDonald's again. So yeah, <laughs> I just find it a bit funnier. Um, Han, same question. Uh, who would hire the elderly actually? Because uh, you know, usually employers they prefer young learners, and they they, you know, they, can, they can pay them less, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Right now, you know, if you are over sixty and you are somewhat valuable to uh, employers, right? You typically be given kind of contract contracts and you know it could be short term in nature one year two years renewable that kind of stuff uh, so increasing the retirement age allows you know for a more certainty right with those people who are already in a job it's not just hey look I, I'm 59 looking for a job now who's going to hire me but it's more around hey look I'm actually still in this job I'm still productive right I'm 59 I can be I can be product productive for another five years uh, but my company has the right next year to retire me right and uh, for me that's kind of 
uh, if I wanted to, I couldn't, right? And that if I wanted to maybe build up my nest egg even further, maybe I'm a bit short due to kids' education, whatever it may be, uh, I, I, I may not be given the opportunity to because the company has the right to retire me at 60. So for me, it's just about... Uh, 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 extending that, that that kind of statutory retirement age allows for you know that kind of feels very niche but it is actually a cohort of people right in the 55 to 60 year old age group who may feel that they can still add value to their employer and, and society and, and not have to rely on these short term contracts after retirement kind of stuff so this already exists but it just brings it closer to the fold brings it you know into wider into into society at large la, and, and make it less of a stigma for you to work after 60. Yeah. I guess now the key point is how do you actually present it to the rakyat and make sure we don't turn like the people in France. Huh? Because that is really not a pretty sight to see. <laughs> but uh, it'll be interesting to see how the government plans to propose it. Do, do you think that the government will propose it? Is it, is it just a matter of time before the government just says, like, hey, we've got to do this, you know, we've got to increase the retirement age. What do you think, Han? I think the more pertinent or the more... Uh, um, it's really much more unpopular but the more pertinent thing to do is actually to increase the EPF withdrawal age right to match the statutory retirement age right now it's 55 right uh, we, you, you, you kicked off the today's session with you know a bit of scary stats on, on retirement right I, I did a, a quite a large thread on this last year in August or so uh, and, yeah, and the link is in one of the, the pin threads uh, pin tweets here right and you know uh, the, the, the most pertinent thing is to actually solve that problem, right? One, one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways to solve the problem is allow for uh, people to let their retirement funds grow, you know, an extra five years, right? So that's one part, right? Go from 55 to 60, let it compound another five years. But also, it kind of makes sense because you, re you raise the retirement age 10 years ago to 60, but you didn't change EPF. So I guess, you know, from a comms perspective, they could reduce some of the blowback by saying, hey, look, like, actually... Right, we're not doing anything groundbreaking. We're just making, uh, we're just making the EPF withdrawal age same as the retirement age. Uh, uh, for some reason, it was different, or you know, error error of the previous, previous, previous administrations more than ten years ago was that it was not done. So now we're just completing the job. Yeah, it shouldn't be controversial. It might still be, but at least that's a kind of angle they could attack, which is hey, there's there's some inconsistency in our in our uh, policies right now. Let's make it consistent. And generally, nobody says no to consistent policy, lah. Mm. Uh, Hans, can I can I ask you a question? Um, because I'm not very familiar with the Malaysian uh system. So at fifty five, you can withdraw everything, is it? If you wanted to, lump sum. So yes, not like Singapore. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really different. Um, I mean, maybe just to share uh with the audience uh how it works here, roughly speaking. I'm not I'm no expert on this. Um, at fifty five, um, you basically all your all your so called ordinary account, special account, everything is lumped together. If you exceed a certain minimum sum, uh, you are allowed to withdraw that minimum sum. Uh, but otherwise, that minimum sum then um, gets locked in for the next uh, five or maybe seven years. I can't remember. I think 63 is a retirement or payout. Um, so what happens is I think currently the minimum sum is roughly 220, 230 around there. So let's say, for example, you reach 55, you lock in 230,000. Um, you will then, at the age of 63, if I remember correctly, uh, you will receive payouts. Um, so it is actually, con that lump sum is actually converted into an annuity. 
uh, a life annuity. So at the age of 63, um, roughly speaking, someone with 230,000 Sing dollars locked up um, uh, from the age of 55 to 63 it grows. Um, by that time, you will be able to receive roughly about things one, last I saw just now was one seven or one eight a month for the rest of your life. So basically, you are, because if, if, if you know how annuity works, it's basically uh, you will be guaranteed payment until the day you die. So um, um, you'll be getting one, one, 1,008 um, until, until basically you kick the bucket. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really how it goes. So some people don't really get to withdraw anything at 55. Um, I think there is this uh, um, um, uh, leeway. I think you can draw, withdraw a minimum of 5,000 even if you don't meet the minimum sum. But uh, of course, if you meet more, more than the minimum sum, you're allowed to withdraw uh, whatever excess there is. La. So I think the, the system is different, uh, but it at least guarantees um, someone or er everyone uh, who has that minimum sum, a certain um, um, minimum, I won't call it minimum wage, but, <laughs> but minimum uh, uh, income. Subsistence, subsistence yeah, sub income. All right, minimum income uh, uh, during retirement. And, and, the, and the thing is, uh, it's actually to, 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 to you die, so it doesn't run out, la, basically. Uh. Uh, don't mind me asking, who takes the, the actuarial risk? Uh? Who takes the, uh, if you live too long, like who, who, takes, that, um, who takes that risk on? I, uh, presumably the... the, the it's, is it it's CPF itself? CPF or? is, yeah. I, I don't know whether they, they go and what you call uh, reinsure with anybody, but I, I presume they probably wouldn't. Okay, okay. So uh, obviously in Malaysia, it's slightly different. Um, at 50, you, re you can withdraw 30% uh, of your funds. Mm -hmm. Five zero or uh, fifty, and thirty percent three zero, and then you you are allowed to withdraw the full remaining seventy uh, percent uh, or whatever amounts is left uh, uh, at fifty five. The entire amount lump sum. So I mean that's that's something that we can look to resolve. I.e., uh, rather than uh, uh, allowing lump sum, or you can allow a lump sum. It's fine. It's their money, right? And especially after retirement, but maybe provide that option of certainty, right? And then uh, have some smart. Mathematical statistical guys uh, run the actuarial risk and you know quote quote an annuity, uh, maybe in, in with uh, with alongside an insurance company or whatever it is, uh, yeah. to allow EPF people rather than just take up the whole lump sum, uh, to to buy this annuity or perpetuity whatever you call it. Uh, so that's kind of uh, a good idea I think we we should explore. Uh, but yeah, the the number one thing for me is making. Allowing that, that whatever the money you have at fifty five grow a bit more give, give it some more time to grow that extra five years right at the end for those of you you know I see some I see some familiar listeners who are very very familiar with personal finance uh, uh, you know for those who you know the final five years of compounding you know can really add the, the most value right so that that can be quite a good game changer for solving this kind of a, a really huge weapon to solve this retirement crisis right it's not the it's not the only weapon we can use but it's a really big one right allowing you know the final five years to you know have the extra five years of a boost for compounding that's that's key yeah i think that's one of the first avenues that a government can explore like, without drawing too much you know controversy uh, uh, the other option in my opinion is to probably do like a partial retirement thing don't go like oh we're going to increase the retirement age from 60 to you know 65 or 62 uh, we just allow them the option to have like a partial retirement allow them to work part-time pay them less salary just so that you know they can have more time to like like you said like compound the uh, EPF savings 
for those of you guys who don't know the power of compounding, right, you can just quickly um, do a Google search, uh, search for compound interest calculator. And then I think there's a first, the first link over there should be able to give you a good grasp of how powerful compounding is. You can key in a few figures, like what is your current EPF balance, how many percent are you compounding it for, etc., etc. And you can really see that the final years of compounding, that's where the most money comes in. Yeah, so um, increasing the retirement age is obviously uh, one of the solutions to tackle the extremely low EPF savings of Malaysians. Uh, for those of you guys who did not hear us from the start of the session just now, just to quickly repeat, 19, only 19% of EPF members had reached the basic savings target of 240,000 ringgit to retire by 55. And that amount would only lead to 1,000 ringgit per month for the next 20 years. So only 19% of people have that right now. So uh, one of the solutions, increase the retirement age, we settled that. Uh, the other solution would be, let's see, raising the mandatory contribution from employers. Now, this one is also, I, I would say, it's also a tough, tough nut to crack. You know? And um, recently, Pian Anwar has, you know, uh, has been calling discussions about raising the mandatory EPF contributions from employer from 13%, not to 14%, not to 15%, but to 20%. You know? So Han... What do you think about this? Increasing the employer's mandatory contribution, will it work or will it do the opposite, etc., etc.? Wow, another hot potato. Okay, like it very much. A um, uh, bit of background, I guess, before I jump into it. Um, uh, I had a short stint in 2019-2020 advising the then Mahathe government, government on, on, on economic matters. I was on a, this thing called the Economic Action Council. Um, and, uh, and I was there for a time, but then when the change of government happened, then, uh, you know, a bit of changes as well. Uh, but last year in August, and, and I, I pinned the tweet again here, or, or Shinji, you may have done so also, uh, uh, I actually made this suggestion myself. And I think KM Anwar uh, said the headline, right, which is 20%, right? Uh, and uh, he probably should have also mentioned that, you know, uh, uh, there are ways to do this without really like capsizing the employer boat because you can imagine what MEF, the Malaysian Employers Federation is going to say to that, that, that big statement, right? That big 20% statement. They're going to say, hey, cannot, right? We're going to go bankrupt all that statements they, they, they like to make, which to be fair to them, right? If it was literally just a blanket 20% uh, uh, across the board, that, that would have been extremely difficult to take, right? That's like a, a huge, 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 huge move, right? But there are ways to do this. Uh, there are ways to tackle the retirement crisis among uh, those with not enough in their, in their retirement funds, yet not destroy employers, right? Not destroy SMEs, right? Uh, and the way to do it is, uh, and you don't have to, it's not too much rocket science, and I, I would love to hear from Sunny later about the Singapore model, because they do something like this, which is uh, tiered and capped employer contributions, right? So you can have 20% employer contributions for, you know, those in the lower income group, right? And then it tears up, right? So, you know, maybe first, and I, I wrote this very specifically, first 2,000, you tear it to say 20%, that's fine, right? So if you earn 2,000 ringgit, you get 400 from the employer, 20%, right? Plus your own 11%, that's 31%, 600 uh, and, and, and 20, right? That's 31%, that's a lot, right? For a low income earner, someone in the 2,000 ringgit range, then maybe everything above 2,000, you, you, you allow the employer to contribute a bit less, right? Because maybe it's not so dire for them to 
not so required for them to contribute that much. Say 10%, right? And I have this 2010 models I suggested back in August. And both, both sides of the aisle contacted me separately saying, hey, talk, talk to me about this. So yeah, I, I, I'm a bit biased because, you know, I, I like to think that, uh, you know, what PM Anwar said was somewhat inspired by what I tweeted last year. Uh, maybe I'm just a bit full of myself. Uh, but, but both sides of the aisle contacted me on this, say, hey, Han, I want to hear more about this idea. Uh, what, what do you mean by this? And I said, well, it's not rocket science. Just look at what Singapore is doing. Um, uh, but, but essentially, it's, it's, it's tiering it. And guess what? We already tier it today, right? Uh, we, we have a fixed tier, which is 13% for those earning under 5,000 and 12%, just a, a straight up 12% above, above 5,000. So it's actually not even progressive. It just outright just changes. So we already have the systems in place to do this kind of tiering anyway. So we might as well just change the numbers, right? 20% for the lowest uh, people earning up to 2,000 ringgit a month and then 10% thereafter. And for most of us uh, uh, earning money, we, we will be actually better off uh, because uh, uh, you, you got that initial 20% boost. So the fact that you get less after that, you're actually only worse off after you earn 10,000 ringgit a month and above, right? And at that stage... Uh, hopefully you're not too worried about retirement, right? Why? Because, you know, if you're at 10,000 ringgit income, you're going to be uh, 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 getting 1,200 from your employer. So 1,400 now, okay, from your employer. Is that right? No, 1,200 from your employer, which is the same as what you're getting today. So you're, you're, you're equalized at 10,000. Um, and, and then you then contribute yourself 1,100. That's 2,300 a month, which you plug into your compound interest calculator will be, you know, a couple of million by the time retire, so you're not in in kind of dire straits, right? So, uh, for me, the people who are worse off are the people who are earning big bucks. Uh. if you're earning twenty thousand a month, you are slightly worse off. You, you know, you are you you are only sorry. I, I say this with a bit of uh uh uh, uh open inverted commas. Yeah, you're only getting two thousand something from employer, uh, uh, as a contribution because it's a lower tier, right? But hey, like uh, you are also not you know, in dire straits, right? You're not in this retirement crisis because you're able to contribute over 3,000 ringgit a month into your retirement pot. You're, you're not going to have big issues on retirement versus somebody earning 2,000 right now. So that was my suggestion and, and I guess some, some folks in, in government picked it up. I hope anyway, I like to think so. Uh, but PM Anwar only gave one side of the story, which is this 20% thing. He should have probably said, hey, look, this can be paid for by uh, allowing employers to reduce contributions for, you know, very high income people. Uh, but Sunny, I, I'd like to hear more about how Singapore does it because I, I, I only know they, they tear it. I don't know exactly how it, how it gets done. Oh, okay. Uh, again, so specific, specifics, I'm not very clear. So I do know they tear. Uh, I know they tear um, uh, by age group. So 55 and below, 55 and 60, 60, 65, 65 to 70, so on. Um, and then they tier by uh, in, uh, salary band, meaning to say if your wages are between 500 and less, 500 to 750, 750 and above, um, you have basically slightly higher uh, contribution rates from the employer side. Um, so it's kind of like a matrix where you have the uh, on the y-axis uh, the so-called age group on the x-axis basically the uh, um, um, uh, the wages itself yeah so there is this tiering that I I, I know of uh, but I don't know the ex how it works out to what amount and such but um, you're right um, um, the, the, the older workers the lesser income workers get a higher portion because of that 
Um, here, I think the, the, and when you spoke about the slightly higher income, so basically here, uh, most of the higher income uh, employees, uh, they would contribute, and I think Malaysia has it also, to what we call uh, a, supplementary, uh, a, a supplementary pension plan. Okay, so basically, um, you voluntarily set aside money in this supplementary uh, plan. Uh, okay. You get tax breaks from it. Um, it's it's flexible enough for you to withdraw, but if you withdraw, it it, it falls into your tax bracket. Uh, so basically, it's for people to keep aside money every year, um, and it coincides with the retire your retirement. So you use this to top up your CPF. Uh, a minimum sum, so to say, when the time comes. So, so for the higher income, this this supplementary uh, plan itself serves as the um, uh, add-on, um, yeah, given that the, there is a cap uh, on the original CPF itself. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's kind of what I understood. So, I mean, long story short, Shinji, it's very simple, right? Which is by allowing uh, uh, someone, say, in the 2,000 ringgit salary range to have 30% or more of his income uh, uh, contributed to EPF, right? I think that that's 600 bucks, right? 620 ringgit. Over a 30-year period, that that compounded, you know, let's say at 6%, 5.5-6% can get you five, six, seven hundred thousand, right? For a low-income earner, or sorry, uh, 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 someone in the 2,000 ringgit a month range to have 600,000 to retire on starts looking more dignified Right than the numbers we're seeing today. So for those of you who who maybe prefer to read what I'm talking about rather than listen to me to me, just check out uh, the 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 thread I wrote uh, in August last year. It, it, I think you 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 just Google retirement time bomb. Oh sorry, not Google. Uh, you search on Twitter retirement time bomb or something. Uh, you'll see it right, and then you see my proposal, which uh, I was hoping would be be pre-tabled and not just simply announced by PM Anwar without the context, which allows for people like them. MEF to start shooting him. Uh, if you we really did some proper due diligence around this, we can really equalize employers. So employers are not worse off. Uh, 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 low wage earners are really really helped in a significant way. And yes, high very high income people you know will feel the pinch. But then then again, you know um, I I think they're not going to complain too much given that employers are still contributing anyway. It's not like they're not contributing at all. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, Shinji at all. No, that really, I, I think that is, is the solution. It's the perfect solution because you're just uh, essentially moving money around. You're not causing a lot of problems by suddenly spiking up the mandatory contribution from 13 to 20%. Yes, you are somewhat doing it, but you're actually uh, taking a bit more money from the rich and actually transferring it uh, towards the poor. Like. It's like... Um, uh, it's like a tiered tax, tax system. Like. It's like a tax system in Malaysia, but kind of like inversed. So I uh, just, just hope I get... Get, get things straight over here. And uh, just like you mentioned, about 630 ringgit, 30 years of compounding, that adds up to be about five 600,000. Yeah, that's actually right. And for those of you guys, right, let's say you are 26, maybe 25 years, you've got 40 more years to retire, uh, you only need to contribute 539 ringgit a month. Now, this is including your mandatory and your both your employer and employee contributions are add up to 539 ringgit a month. After 40 years, you put it into an asset that compounds 6% annually, assume it's EPF, you're going to have 1 million straight on the bank. So yeah, I also put up the charts here for you guys to see what if you started 10 years later, 20 years later, the amount actually adds up pretty quickly. So 
uh, I think we are pretty much settled on the retirement side. Han, Mr. Sunny, do you guys have anything to add before we go on transition to Bank Negara, Malaysia's recent OPR hike? Um, okay, uh, maybe just to, to wrap it up with a piece of advice coming from someone who is nearing retirement. <laughs> Not Daniel, la. come on. Sunny. <laughs> Still got at least 10 years to go. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 much less. Yeah. So, um, ask anyone who is basically in their 50s and near to retirement, who's worked their whole life, um, um, and, and ask them, were you, or, you know, were you surprised when you looked into your EPF and CPF balances? Because I personally was very surprised when I looked into my, I don't keep track of, of it, and every now and then I have a look at it, and so on. So when I look at it, I'm saying, wow, okay, at least I think uh, it's a comfortable amount. Um, and I asked myself the question, could I have saved that amount if I had done it voluntarily myself? And the answer, very straightforward, is no. It, was all, it would probably be almost impossible for me to save that amount if you were to ask me to set it aside voluntarily. So it's a forced saving. Um, uh, people get frustrated that they are forced to save and they can't use it, but it's for a good reason. So start early. Put in as much as you can early again. Uh, Sinji mentioned compounding. You put in early, it works a lot, very well. Um, just imagine one dot, every one ringgit that you put in today, 20 years later, roughly, it's going to become two ringgit. Okay, um, So you are basically just getting back your own money. And by the time it, it's two ringgit, let me tell you, inflation will probably be also double. So just basically from a, from a purchasing power perspective, you're just getting back that, that one ringgit enough for you to buy a cup of coffee. So you're saving virtually for your future. Um, um, and let me tell you, people are living longer. Uh, Malaysia's uh, um, uh, mortality rate, or not mortality, sorry, Malaysia's, uh, uh, what do you call that really? Uh, life expectancy is now 75. Uh, Singapore is about 84. Um, I think along the years, it's 75 will move to 84. Um, so I think everybody has to be prepared to live longer um, in the future. So I think starting early is, is my advice. Yeah. Han, what about you? Uh, last words for this topic before we you know, jump onto the, the other one. Um, I guess we're in Twitter. So my last words on this is more around uh, making sure we guide policymakers towards the right solutions. And try not to try not to go lean towards you know too populist views, right? Because the right solution is really to solve the problems of tomorrow today, and not wait till tomorrow. Uh, you know, you solve it for yourself first. Make sure you you got yourself sorted, save enough, ret- uh, you know, invest enough to retire well yourself, but also help the rest of Malaysia by by you know uh, pushing for more structured di- discourse, right? Rather than just finger pointing. You know, Pierre Anwar says this, then MEF says this, then everyone's just pointing fingers at each other rather than trying to solve an issue. And uh, for me, I, I go from a basis of, look, right, I'm, uh, let's try and solve it, right? It's going to be tough, but let's try and solve it. So uh, just a couple of things there. Lah. Yeah. For those of you guys in the audience, if you are in any case a politician or close to a politician, you know who to contact. Lah, okay, so uh, the two speakers are right here. Just giving you guys a hint. <laughs> so, um, okay, let's transition into the next topic. Now, this one is also a big one. Bank Negara Malaysia's recent OPR hike. OPR hike. Ooh. Central Bank last week, Malaysian Central Bank last week, surprised the markets by raising the overnight policy rate by 25 basis points. 
bringing it to the pre-pandemic level of 3%. Now, this was really a shocker to everyone uh, uh, because a recent Reuters poll before the meeting last week indicated that majority of the economists, they weren't expecting a rate hike. And across Twitter, I've seen quite a few posts from uh, a few notable figures, economists out there. They were also not expecting this rate hike. And uh, I think I would just pass the ball to the economist over here because Mr. Sunny is an economist. Are you surprised by Ben Agara's recent movement as well? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I was. I mean, it's very, I wouldn't say rare, but uh, yeah, it's very unco- un- uncommon for a central bank to go on a sharp uh, monetary tightening, which happened last year, then start pausing um, and then restart again its tightening. Um, especially after two sessions or two two meetings, you know, if they if they really wanted to say, uh, we want to stop for a while to monitor the impact of our sharp rate hikes last year because there's a lag in monetary policy, then typically you probably wait a little bit longer because two two sessions is not not that long la. So the fact that they hike uh was was kind of a surprise, although there was always this small little possibility given what had happened in 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 some of the other central banks. I think uh, Australia also hiked again and such. So um to be honest, I the the argument that they put forth that that they were actually normalizing it or bringing it back to normal, well, they could have done it earlier i don't know why they choose to stop and do it again i mean but that they are prerogative uh but overall um i think yeah it was a surprise in in, in my view Han, same question are you surprised by nagara's recent movement i personally i if people follow me on twitter like i i i, I called for somewhere between three to five increases from kind of may onwards last year uh, turns out to be four, and then stop, and then now the fifth one. But um, I was surprised for two reasons. Number one, uh, um, they paused in January when I did not expect them to. So I expected this to happen already in January. Why? Because uh, um, the the Q3 GDP numbers was, were quite strong, really. Inflation at the time was still, on a year-on-year basis, uh, 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 over 4%, which is, in, in Malaysian terms, high. Uh, I expected Bank of to just you know slam the brakes shut on that. And say, hey, look, economy is doing okay, uh, and but inflation is still running hot. We need to just cap it here, right? Let's let's not let it get out, out of hand. Uh, but then they paused, and then they paused again, and then uh, some economic data came out later on that said, hey, look, actually maybe they were right to pause because uh, actually seasonally adjusted basis GDP in Q four, which was only reported kind of uh, kind of in in February or so, right? Uh, GDP was seemed to be. Uh, a, a bit weaker than expected, right? Or rather, on a seasonally adjusted basis, it was actually negative. Um, and also, I, I suppose they, they paused uh, due to the budget because it was not clear uh, 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 how expansionary the budget was. And then, you know, they, they thought, hey, look, let's hold first. Let's not do something which we have to reverse later. Uh, so that could have been the reason for the pause. But then this latest increase, uh, I think it was just uh, just last week, right? Yeah, yeah, last week, correct. Yeah, yeah. It tells me something, which is they have some numbers, early numbers from, uh, uh, my guess is Q1, uh, Q1 uh, GDP, but it could be a bunch of numbers that came out yesterday and today, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, services, retail trade, uh, uh, CPI, and unemployment. 
uh, and the numbers are starting to come true, right? Which is like, oh, uh, wholesale retail trade, which is how much we buy, uh, how much us consumers and businesses buy, you know, 13, 14% up this quarter, Q1 versus Q1 last year, right? Which implies, you know, GDP is going to be a bit stronger than we expect. Uh, number two, uh, uh, um, uh, unemployment is down further again. Uh, I think it's pretty much uh, pre-pandemic already, if not uh, just a couple more points from there, uh, a couple more sorry basis points from there. So uh, all in all, I think Bangra is saying, "Hey, look, like the 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 new budget is done, right? Appears to be, you know, uh, expansionary. The, you know, the the Anwar government decided to spend even more money than 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 Ismail Sabri's uh, budget. So therefore, they feel they they probably felt okay. I think we can probably afford another uh, rate hike just to kill this inflation thing, right? Inflation was still running." Uh, at three point four, I think last week or two weeks two weeks ago, so um, they wanted to just kill it. Personally, I thought uh, they'd done enough already, right? Seeing the latest numbers, but I guess they are seeing more numbers than we are. We'll find out tomorrow. Uh, GDP numbers out tomorrow will probably be slightly stronger than we expect. Otherwise, it does really doesn't make sense why BNM hiked their rates, right? If GDP comes out weaker than expected, I'll be like, why did they do it then? What are they seeing that we're not seeing? Hmm. Yeah, it is. It is really out of expectations, and um, you mentioned just now you were talking about inflation still being quite persistent. I think maybe Bank Nagara Malaysia has also recognized that uh, if you look at core inflation, most recent figure came out at three point eight percent compared to uh, the prior month's figure of three point nine percent. So, uh, in 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 their monetary statement, they also said that core inflation is still relatively persistent, which is I suppose one of the reasons of them raising the overnight policy rate. But let's track back a bit. I'm sure some of the people in the audience, they are a bit lost right now because we are getting a bit too technical and stuff. What is the overnight policy rate and how does it affect you? I think I will let Han take this first. Yeah, OPR, what is it, Han? <laughs> um, uh, OPR, yeah, you said OP overnight policy rate. It's basically an interest rate that Bank Nagara uh, a set or there's a there's a committee in Bank Negara called the MPC uh, includes the governor some independent people etc they they set a rate which uh, 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 banks in Malaysia use as a reference to get, uh, to, to to set their deposit or lending rates right? so uh, 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 Bank Negara as with most central banks in the world use these kind of rates to uh, 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 basically increase or decrease you know the cost of borrowing and and, and lending right and and doing this allows them to control demand right in the economy right so if rates are high you generally don't want to spend right you want to keep it in the bank earn high interest you also as a business don't want to start lending uh, borrowing money to to finance purchases like your factory or car or, or lorries or, or computer equipment for your data center whatever it may be you if interest rates are high you generally want to avoid doing that avoid these kind of big big purchases on on on, on borrowings right so by controlling the rate uh, central banks like Bank Nagara can can impact you know consumer and business demand right you you spend less you save more or businesses spend less therefore reducing demand uh, creates price pressure right so if you're a supplier of things and suddenly like demand drops one of the levers you can pull is to reduce your price right to to get back to your previous demand this is micro or macroeconomics stuff which I guess Mr Sunny is better at but like just in, in at the basic level that's my understanding anyway. So when OPR goes up, you spend less. Why? Guess what? Your loans are more expensive, so you have less to spend. So you spend less. So suppliers or, or, or manufacturers, whatever, will have to reduce their prices 
therefore reducing inflation, right? So that's kind of uh, my understanding of it. Uh, hopefully that makes sense for everyone. I think that's a very, sim- a very simple and easily understandable way to explain it. Uh, Mr. Sunny, with this recent OPR hike, what can we expect in our you know, changes in spending and saving patterns apart from what Han just mentioned just now? Um, the well, just judging from some stuff which I've seen on Twitter, um, people were especially on the uh, and I think I'm front running this, but on the for example the uh, AS is it AS ASB ASB yeah ASB ASM yeah 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 because a lot of people took out loans the ASB financing right um and because whenever there although it's kind of like a savings but when you have these kind of um hikes um it kind of um then entails them to to fork out more because i saw someone was writing like you know, i used to pay like 500 bucks now i have to pay like 600 over over the course of one year it's all increased so you know it's harder to to adjust your expenditure if you're paying on a, let's say for example on a, on a loan floating loan um, um, you tend to be you're forced to pay it, and you can't just typically pay off the loan at one lump sum, you know. But, but this ASB financing may be a proxy of how people are reacting uh, to some of this kind of um, discretionary um, um, allocation of their, their 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 salary, because a lot of people on Twitter were saying, "Oh, I want to go to the bank and 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 stop my ASB financing." So I, I'm assuming, judging from there that it is hitting them from the perspective that, you know, already I'm quite tight. Now you raise uh, OPR, which feeds into the so-called the SBR uh, um, rate, which then uh, jacks up my uh, ASP financing. I have to fork out another 50, 100 ringgit uh, aside every month. So uh, it's, it's, it's getting even more tighter and it's much easier to just stop it. So I think that shows to an extent that the discretionary spending on the uh, consumer side is getting a bit tight because people are looking to 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 relinquish themselves from this kind of fixed um, uh, um, expenditure that they have to make every month so I'm, I'm seeing that from judging from 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 the increase that's the impact I'm seeing at this point yeah I mean to really just sum everything up both both the speakers said right um, when the OPR increases it's generally bad news for borrowers because the rates of new loans and existing floating loans, i.e. housing loans, they increase by a similar amount as well. So at the end of the day, you've got to fork out more to pay for your mortgage. Yeah. But at the same time, if you save a lot of money, then that's going to be good news for you because um, banks, they will update their deposit rates and things like cash apps, touch and go, money market funds essentially will essentially increase their earnings rate as well. Is that is Am I am I on the right ballpark, Mr. Sunny? Am I, am I right to say this? Yeah, typically, typically, banks, uh, as usual, they are they're more sticky to the upside. Meaning, you say that um, when it comes to raising deposit rates, they're a bit more slower because they want to, to maintain their margins. Uh, the loan rates are quite fast because it's always you know uh, that's where they make their money. So the loans will go up much faster. Um, uh, the deposit rates tend to go up much slower, so they get a certain spread. But at the end of the day, it does adjust higher. Um, especially when you have this kind of now uh, other apps giving you such high rates. So maybe there's, there's a bit like the US where the money market funds are now siphoning away 
so much money from the mid 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 sized banks in the US and even the large banks in the US. Um, so the the banking sector is forced to increase their their deposit rates in the US because right now they're giving only about one maximum two percent. Whereas the money market funds in the US are giving four and a half five percent because most of them are, are invested in US treasuries, um, and so there's this huge outflow from the US banking sector at this point in time. So I think, uh, and that's that's forcing the US banks to raise their deposit rates. So similarly, I think in 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 Malaysia, since you mentioned, I can't remember is it the touch and go and stuff like that. So if they're offering very uh, higher rates, relatively higher rates than the banks, then the banks will have to adjust in order not to lose deposits. I guess. Yeah, this is actually a very good good thing that you mentioned because uh, right now it's actually happening already. Banks, the highest rate that they are currently offering, I've done a thread about this later. I'll bring this up for you guys. Uh, it's from Bank Islam Malaysia, the fixed deposit one year tenor. Uh, I think it's four point two five percent, and cash apps they are really close to that mark already. Like Versa, um, Touch and Go, they are already close to four percent or they have already hit the four percent mark already. So, and I think I'll pass the ball to you lah. Um, what do you think about the uh, OPI increasing the savings and cash apps, uh, banks increasing their fixed deposit yields, etc., etc. Yeah, I think for uh, in general for consumers, uh, I always like to think of consumer first, lah. Huh? Uh, for consumers, we're gonna see increases in our floating rate loans, right? Uh, so for every let's say five hundred thousand ringgit loan that you have, you can expect about seventy seventy five ringgit increase per month. Right, so on the loan side, you know it's going to be a bit painful, but then that kind of seventy-five ringgit you have less to spend on something that's going to cause inflation. According to Ben Agara's uh, uh, theories, lah, we'll see if this pay plan pans out, and I think it will pan out. Inflation should drop under three within the next two three months, uh, judging by the numbers. I'm not I'm not a, a crystal ball forecaster, but like it, it should drop in the two to the twos by by mid year or so, like by July, right? But in terms of savings. I think banks have a lot less wiggle room uh, these days than they did. Uh, two reasons. Number one, uh, uh, for those of you, I guess, uh, uh, old enough to remember, uh, my parents' time at least, everything was just about talking about FD. So they would take one FD, put it for three to six months in one bank. Three months later, they would take it out and put it in another bank, etc. And, and that was actually, when I heard that kind of story, it felt very cumbersome for me to do. Uh, but now it's a lot more convenient to access, you know, these high rates, right? What do you say? 4.25. Uh, yeah, to be fair, 4.25. Yeah. yeah, to be fair, 4.25 was pre-OPR, right? So you can expect, you know, within the next few weeks, some banks who are hungry for deposits may, 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 may increase that. Like, so I, I can imagine 4.5 high force uh, uh, in the coming weeks like, due to this uh, OPR hike. So good news for savers. Uh, and especially with inflation dropping, then your your the gap between how much you're earning in interest or profit rate versus inflation uh, gives you a bit of cushion there, which is rare, right? For for banks, normally you put things in a bank, uh, inflation will, will will bite. Uh, but if you know if deposit rates are in the high force, uh, uh, fixed deposit rates that there is, um, and inflation is in the mid twos by by mid year, uh, even if you you allow for your own personal inflation to be higher than two point five or three or whatever. Uh, still a little gap there. At least you can defend against inflation. But yeah, so for me, I think you know fintech apps. Uh, I like to say uh, again. I like. I feel I'm tweeting my own horn a lot in this space. I try not to do it anymore. Uh, but you know, I will hope that you know fintech has, is a force for good, right? Right. That now there's a lot of awareness of uh, uh, investing in money market funds 
uh, and investing in the Malaysian government directly without having to go through a bank intermediary. I think that's that's push at least if not if nothing else, making banks have to be more competitive for us, and that can only be a good thing. No, yeah, it's it's really a good point you mentioned, like, Just like what Mister Sunny covered, uh, it, because of the competitive rates, they are actually draining a lot of uh, money from fixed deposits. I mean, me personally, I would think twice or thrice before putting my money into fixed deposit right now because cash lab, cash apps like Versa, they give four uh, percent. They pay you out once per month. They compound your interest every day, and you can deposit and withdraw within two to three business days. Whereas uh, fixed deposits, you gotta wait for the entire year then only you get back your interest. So, yeah, it's interesting to see in the upcoming weeks or months ahead whether banks will increase their deposit rates to 45 or even 4.75%. And overall, it's good news for savers. Yeah. So, okay, the next question will be, Bank Nagara Malaysia, OPR rate is now at 3%. Will they maintain it or not? Or are we expecting more rate hikes in the upcoming months? I think this question is also a very big one from a lot of people because they want to know whether their mortgages are going to go up or not. So, um, Han, you can take this question first. Will it stay at 3% for the rest of the year? What do you think? Oh, okay. Good one again. Trying to bring up my crystal ball now. Um, I think uh, I try not to do too much kind of projection forecasting, but if you look at what, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Norshamsha, the Madam Governor, said about nine, ten months ago, or maybe about a year ago by now, she, she outright said, hey, look, we're going to normalize. Right. And we're going to do it gradually. We're going to do it in a measured manner. So that kind of implied, hey, look, they're going to have, you know, uh, at the point where she said it, there were four more meetings left to have in a year. So it was pretty much locked on that they're going to go to uh, 2.75 by the end of the year, which they did, right? Then midway through uh, that hiking cycle, uh, as she was increasing it, she started saying things like, oh, but there's no set space. There's no set direction. We're normalizing. In, 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 we'll get there eventually. So then you can kind of read between the lines and say, oh, okay, it looks like you're about to stop hiking, but not sure when. And indeed, she stopped in, in January. I expected not to, but they, they, they didn't hike in January. Um, and guess what? We're at 3% now. This was the rate right uh, before COVID hit. I think, uh, and it was bouncing between 3 to 3.25 for about 10 years before COVID. So I think going by what Bank Nagara is saying, right? If you ask me, and most, one more, Right, so to three point two five, right in twenty twenty three. Obviously, can't predict what's going to happen after that. Uh, but uh, judging by what Benegar has said and is currently saying, uh, we might stay here at three point zero zero, or we might go up to three point two five. Uh, uh, I personally think uh, 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 two things. Number one, they might stay here depending on what uh, uh, inflation does. I think by mid year it will drop to the twos, which means they they can just stay where they are. I also think that uh, if the global economy starts to further deteriorate, then that, 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 that means we, we shouldn't be hiking rates. That, that damages us for no reason when the global economy is, is, is doing it for us. Uh, uh, but as a consumer, we need to prepare for at least one more hike, right? Or oh, sorry, at, at, most, at most one more hike. So another hike to 3.25. And it would not be inconsistent with what they said in the past, which is, hey, we want to normalize. And normalize in, in their speak means either 3 or 3.25, even though I think it's unlikely to happen. Mm. Okay, so just putting a bit of uh, insurance over there. I like it, I like it. Mr. Sunny, same question. BNM, OPR 3%, what do you think? Will they raise it to 3.25? Well, I think uh, uh, Hans has uh, put it very nicely and, and, and I totally agree with him 100%. 100%. 
Um, the only thing I would add probably is that big question mark hanging over my head now, like, you know, why did they do it and such. I have this kind of nagging sense that maybe um, normalization was one thing, but there, uh, it could also be that they need the rates to be high enough in order to bring it down. Uh, when they bring it down, there's room to bring it down. Um, and this has sometimes been been something brought up not only here but also in in the U.S. and such. You know, if you don't bring rates high enough, there's no way you can cut during a recession. If your typical recession is a three percent uh, cumulative cut, if your if you don't bring rates more than three percent, where are you going to go? So so in terms of of that, I think potentially maybe maybe three point two five, but honestly three three two five i mean that's really the end of the tunnel already uh so if they were to do three two five i wouldn't be surprised um it just gives them a little bit more room when the economy slows to to reduce rates yeah mr Lee, just to you know put you on the spot over here mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the opi hike uh, apart from benefiting savers over here will it transition to will it mean more ringgit strength or not because you know you once told me currencies fluctuate due to supply and demand, which are mainly driven by the difference in interest rates. What do you think about the ringgit? Will it strengthen due to this OPI hike? Um, I haven't, well, to be honest with you, I haven't looked at the reaction and such, but overall, the the overall, my overall view was actually when Bank Nagara had kind of um, um, uh, kept rates unchanged, um, the expectation was the next move would probably be down. And given my strong view that the Federal Reserve would actually keep rates steady all the way until basically early next year, end of this year, next year, that would mean a widening differential between US rates and, and, and ringgit rates or Malaysian rates. And that would benefit the, the dollar itself. I know the dollar is not everybody's favorite at this point in time, but I think people forget that um, 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 if you an- if the Fed anchors rates where they are today and 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 act on what they've been saying, i.e., we will not reduce rates, and everybody else starts to reduce, then you effectively also have a widening interest rates. Um, right now, um, things have changed. Of course, in Malaysia, they 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 banned high rates, but um, it should benefit the ringgit. I think it did temporarily, uh, but overall, it's still a dollar play. I think so. Everybody's going to have a look at the dollar. Everybody's on one side of the boat with respect to the dollar. Um, I think that could spring some surprise. Uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the dollar kind of have has a mini rally because just too many people are short dollar at this point in time. Yeah, talking about dollar, right? There has been too much talks about de-dollarization as of recently. So. <laughs> Uh, Han, same question. Ring it strength. What do you think? BNM's recent OPR hike will it strengthen? I think personally, they I think agree with Sunny completely. Um, Ben Agarad. I don't see clean catch up but you know we we did not cut rates to the extent that most developed markets did, and we have not increased rates to the extent that most developed markets have, and that differential uh, is probably part of the decision making. I think for this latest hike they looked at the they looked across they thought everyone was pausing turns out not everyone was pausing uh, they were hiking still so Benegar probably felt a little of uh, a little pressure there on the on the FX side to do it right such so then so then they end up spending less to defend the ringgit right? so I think that's kind of where I, I go with that uh, I have zero idea where uh, the dollar is going 
personally because there are so many uh, push and pull factors, right? There, there, there's a big, there's a big uh, 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 view on the dollarization now, which you know I'm looking forward to hearing Mr. Sunny next week talk more about. I, I, I think there's, there's a webinar that uh, Mr. Sunny is, is, is sponsoring or, or involved in that I want definitely try and tune in. Uh, but you know, other than the dollarization, there's also a flight to safety uh, mindset now, right? You can talk about long-term structural decline of the dollar, but you know, in the short term, sudden rush to the dollar due to five percent rates with a safe currency currently can't really beat that. So I think that's kind of uh, uh, anyone who's saying uh, they can predict where it's going is 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 taking a big gamble on on one or other of the directions. So I tend to lean with Mrs. Sunny in this. There could be suddenly a short squeeze, right? Where people just rush to the safety of the dollar in a recession. Yeah, exactly. Because we, we I, I guess we aren't really uh, factoring in a recession of some sort yet. Because everybody thinks that a recession is not going to come to Malaysia or at least not going to hit the US, so on and so forth. But uh, we never know when a recession is going to come. And considering so many people being bearish on the dollar right now, that, that might actually trigger a short squeeze, uh, like what you said just now. Um, and uh, just to put you on the spot, Han, your turn. <laughs> Sorry. Uh. Uh, I think you once done a calculation on the OPR hikes, how it affects the mortgage loans. Do you have the numbers? Like, uh, what are the numbers? What does the uh, your loan cost increase when this when Bank of Nagara Malaysia raises rates by 25 basis points? Sure, sure. I mean, most loan calculators will, will, will tell you the answer and obviously it depends on what's your loan size, depends on what's your loan tenure, right? Uh, and depends on what's your current rate anyway. But uh, I mean, just, for, just so then everyone can has a sense of, of, of what the damage is, for every 25 basis points, uh, you're looking at uh, 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 35 ringgit for every 250,000 loan principal. So let's say you have a home loan uh, let's say five hundred thousand to make it easier, right? I I don't know how many how how, how big everyone's loan is, but let's say five hundred thousand just for simplicity. Uh, you can expect to start paying seventy ringgit, seventy five ringgit more every time they increase by twenty five basis points. So that's seventy seventy five ringgit less every month in your pocket that you have to pay. Uh, in 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 your installment. So that's hopefully that gives everyone a sense, right? And then if you have a million ringgit, then it's closer to 140, 150 ringgit uh, a month extra, right? If you have a hundred thousand ringgit, then maybe the impact's not so heavy. Uh, a hundred hundred thousand ringgit loan, you're looking at 14, 15 ringgit extra. Mm. Okay, so you guys got the numbers over there, and. Uh, Mr. Sunny, what about those who don't have home loans and are currently renting? Will the OPR hike lead to an increased cost in renting? Will those people who rent out their properties... Because, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Because now that the mortgage rates are more expensive, will they raise the rent as well? Well, again, I, I guess so. I guess um, it really depends on, on several factors and such. But by and large, um, when you get some of this uh, pass-through effect from higher, higher interest rates over to um, the so-called second tier, which is either homeowners, business owners, uh, shop owners, um, so on and so forth, uh, they will pass it over to 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 the consumers, lah. Yeah. Um. Still, a lot of factors. Um. In 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 economies, we call it depending on your elasticity and such. But, but but price elasticity, but. By and large, they will, if they could. Mm. Okay. 
yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, it also depend on de- the demand, lah. Because if you end up increasing your rent, then nobody's just gonna come and rent with you. <laughs> so okay, um, we are down to the final question of the night, and uh, after the final question, we are going into the Q and A session, which is about fifteen to thirty minutes. Uh, for those of you guys who have any questions at all. Uh, now would be the best time to type your questions, uh, send it to us via DMs if you are afraid to step up. Yeah, up after we address the last question, lah, of course. And uh, if you want to post it on Twitter, you can tag us as well or tag any of these speakers. Okay, so just letting you guys know. Um, the final question of the night is, oh, this one is also pretty interesting. Oh, wow, we had such an interesting night. ASB ASM, Amana Saham Bumi Putra, Amana Saham Malaysia. For those who are new, ASB and ASM. They are both unit trust funds managed by the company ASNB, Amana Saham National Berhad. They have been known to pay out, actually quite good dividends, you know, averaging about six point nine percent for ASB, and five point six eight percent for ASM in the past eleven years. So obviously, Amana Saham Bumi Putra is for Bumi Putra's only lah. Meanwhile, Amana Saham Malaysia is open to all Malaysians, subject to availability. And um, from what I've heard, it's extremely hard to get units. But recently, ASM they have increased their fund size by five billion ringgit, opening it to all Malaysians, saying that hey, um, it's a good time to save. We want to encourage people to save, but I think they are just lacking money. They just need more money. Okay, we'll discuss about that later. And uh, the the dividend rate has also been declining recently. So Han, ASB, ASM, yay or nay? Oh, I I'm very nervous to make my statements here, uh, because I know how important it is to most people. Not financial uh, advice. Not financial advice. Just not financial advice, uh, <laughs> But personally, I would say, <laughs> um, without saying too much about you know, uh, the facts. Like the facts are dividends used to be high, now they are low. There are reasons for that, and I'll go through those reasons exactly after this. But uh, um, for me, the 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 one thing that they don't have, which something like the EPF has. Uh, is a statutory minimum, right? So the government will guarantee uh, a return for EPF uh, in 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 a troubled time, right? Where uh, ASD, ASM do not have this uh, implicitly, uh, explicitly, I should say. Uh, so that's one thing to to mention, which is um, what if you're investing in ASB, ASM, it's important to know what you're investing in actually, right? Uh, 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 you know, like. Uh, if you look at the annual reports, you'll see exactly what they're investing in, right? Yeah, 80% invested in Bursa, Malaysia, large caps, right? Public Bank, Maybank, Tenaga National, Patronas Dagangan. All these things, uh, uh, basically, uh, the, the KLCI, right? And we all know what the KLCI has done over the last 5-10 years, right? It's not gone too many places. Most of the returns have come from dividends rather than price appreciation or, you know, the Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange or the index. So, you know, and, and therefore your returns are going to just look like that. Right? So for me personally, if you, if you want 4 to 5% returns, it's, it, as in, that's fine. But you really need to understand what risk you're taking, right? So uh, we talked for a long time, like about half an hour ago to 15 minutes ago about FDs, right? And, 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 and money market funds returning 4, 4.5%. Uh, here you are in ESB, ASM, getting 4.5%, 4 to 4.5%, but you're investing in, in, in 80% of your money in, in Bursa, Malaysia. Uh, so that's kind of, uh, what's the word to use? Uh, uh, if, if I'm putting my classical finance theory hat, 
I find it very difficult to, to get equity returns the same as money market returns uh, uh, um, and, and, and accept that. So for me personally, uh, I think it's a great place if you are not putting your retirement money, retirement money inside, right? Because uh, if you're retiring, you should be, or that you're planning for retirement, you should be looking longer term, higher risk, higher return. Uh, you know, if you're, you're storing your emergency funds in here, uh, some short term, one, two years, saving up for a wedding, saving up for uh, 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 having a child, saving up for buying a car, saving up for home deposit, perfectly fine. Uh, but any longer than that, I'll be looking at higher risk, higher return. Because with ASB, ASM, you're actually getting high risk because it's equity risk. Yet, 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 yet. Money market level returns, right? So for me, that's kind of, uh, I, I, I'll leave it there and then uh, I want to hear what Mr. Sunny thinks about it. Mr. Sunny, same question. ASB, ASM, yay or nay? Oh, let me under, uh, try and understand it. So ASB and ASN itself, um, the it's at par value, right? One ringgit, right? Yeah. So you go in and go out at one ringgit, there's no fluctuation in the um, so-called um, par value. La. That's right, that's right. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I can understand where Hans is coming from. If you are looking, if you if you understand the financial statements and you can see that they are investing in basically bursa, uh, majority local domestic markets, um, and you are able to take that risk, then of course this one caps your risk uh, because you're not getting you're not getting that full full returns for the so-called uh, place where they're. So basically, you know, um, um, the people at ASN or ASB, uh, um, and you mentioned ASB Berhad, right, or PNB, so-called, if I'm not wrong, um, they are making the spread, basically. Um, you know, they give you, what, 3 4% and they, the capital gains, basically, they pocket. So that's been the, that's been the uh, modus operandi so far, um, um, uh, for many many years, now. so I guess now it's a bit getting a bit tough because capital gains are hard to come by, um, and of course dividends have fallen and and but the div- falling dividends they can always uh, push it over to the depositors so to say uh, with lower and lower dividends. So for me, if you are putting it there, I don't see um, uh, again. I, Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, while they are not covered under the what's the insurance PIDM is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I I don't think that they're covered under PIDM. Uh, but at the same time they do potentially um uh, carry what we call a uh, uh, implicit uh, sovereign backing probably uh, given their their role and such. So probably if 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 they were ever in trouble, the sovereign would come in to 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 bail them out. So to say again, this is not. It's just my view of it, you know. Yeah, uh, you probably have to find out whether they're rated and, and, and anybody has a different view. Um, my peeve with ASB and ASN is not the ASB ASN itself, uh, but the financing part. Uh, so ASB financing, and I presume there's AS, um, ASM financing also. Um, I think we've, we've reached a point where we are at the intersection between what you're paying for your financing of these units versus what you're receiving in terms of dividends from these units, we've reached that intersection point. Um, it, long gone are the days where your ASB uh, or ASM would earn you double-digit dividends. Uh, past two, you would pay the bank only 4 or 5%, so you get to pocket 7%. It made a lot of sense that back then when you were making such spreads. Uh, 
But now if you go to the bank um, with the OPR rate where it is today, you'll probably be paying basically four and a half, four point six, even sometimes four point seven percent for your financing and your and your returns dividends is probably around there also. Uh, of course, there are different tiering. Uh, but by and large, uh, you could say that we're very, either very near or even at that point. So effectively, you're earning four. Let's say, for example, if you get four point seven on your ASB, you're turning around, taking that four point seven dividend and giving it to the bank, and the bank says thank you very much. Um, so that part doesn't make sense. So I don't think ASB financing makes sense, a lot of sense at this point. Um, but basically, parking it in ASB, if you treat it as a little bit like a deposit. Uh, where you're going to get dividends and such, then that's fine. But if you are someone of a higher risk, able to take risks, like Hans mentioned, then um, of course you can get better returns elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. So um, let let me just put like a, a theoretical example uh, to make this session a bit fun. Uh, Han, let's say you have a hundred thousand ringgit right now. Okay, and and this is just purely theoretical. And we put we slap the not financial advice thing there. As uh, what we always do, okay. Um, would you actually put it all into ASM? I mean, obviously no lah. And uh, where where would you actually allocate it? Apart from all these funds, we have fixed deposits. They're giving like four point two five percent. Then like uh, cash apps, giving four percent. Where else can you put your funds? Wow, that's very dangerous question. But I'll try my best. Um, yeah. So I think uh, uh, if I had that kind of money, right? Um, I, it, the real question is, what what am I going to do? What what am I investing for, right? So, for example, if if uh, you know, am I investing for tomorrow? Is it I need the money tomorrow, so I need to put, find somewhere for today? Or is it in one year, two years, twenty years, thirty years? I think that's the first question to ask. Uh, second question is, what's kind of my 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 goal, uh, right? What's my my return risk and return goal? Um, second, at last. Around specifically for ASB and SM, do I believe in the you know do I have full faith in the uh, sovereign Malaysian government to uh, backstop any issues with ASB and SM? Should the local stock market seriously underperform? Let's say it seriously underperforms, there's massive earnings cuts, which I believe most companies themselves at Bursa uh, are forecasting this year, right? Earnings reduction, right? Therefore, dividend reduction, and but coupled with 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 underperformance of uh, the overall index, right? Do do I believe that that Malaysian government will come in and step in? Uh, I think they will personally, but uh, uh, as a as a kind of market participant, a market based investor with with no particular emotional ties, I I need not take that kind of risk. If and, and there are so many other options as you mentioned, so let's go back to those options. Uh. If I had that money, I, I need it for the short term. You know, I need it for the next two months, three months. Maybe I'm getting married. Maybe I'm having a, a, a baby soon. Maybe uh, I, I need to buy a car. I'll probably put it into a money market fund, uh, a cash app, what do you call it? Yeah. Yeah. It need not be those, through those apps. I can find, you know, uh, probably high interest outside of those apps. If I go to the fund management industry in Malaysia, ask them for their top, you know, top money market slash income fund, uh, I'll probably get four, four and a half, five percent, right? And uh, liquid next day, two days, uh, uh, my money back. That's where I would go if I'm thinking for the short term. Uh, in the long term, for me, it's you know, it's 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 two things, right? One, uh, uh, taking a bit more risk, right? So if if I got enough bursa exposure through my EPF, 
I probably don't want to double down on Versa exposure. Right? I'll probably look overseas, right? Some nice diversified, uh, uh, you know, developed markets I could tease, right? Uh, and I hold it for 20 years in the long term. So, you know, I kind of mix. Uh, I, assuming I have EPF already, I just, this is, this theoretical 100,000 is my extra cash. Uh, um, if it's short term, yeah, money market funds, income funds, sound like a good way to do it. Look for a low, low fee, low management fee, no sales charge kind of fund and go for it. Uh, if I'm looking for longer term, higher risk, higher return, yeah, yeah, definitely uh, international equities, maybe a little bit of diversified crypto uh, just for that, you know, high return, high risk, high return quicker, you know, for a 10-year, 20-year portfolio. Wow, that's a very safe answer, man. I, I can see you are really trying to hold back yourself on, on, on touching in on the sensitive part, etc., etc., and and. Yeah, uh, actually, it, it is a question asked by one of the audiences. Like, I just decided to you know, blur the lines a bit, make sure it doesn't uh, step too much into the financial side of things, into the advice side of things. Yeah, Mr. Sunny, same question. If you had 100,000 ringgit, or probably when you convert it to Sing dollars, I don't know how much is it, probably maybe 25,000 Sing. <laughs> I don't know, 30,000 Sing. Yeah, yeah, 30,000 Sing roughly. What would you do with that money right now? I mean, again, I mean... Uh... I'll only answer answer this question if every ten seconds you say not financial advice, okay? Okay, okay, um, not financial advice. <laughs> every ten seconds. Um, again, this is like totally ceteris paribus. Everything else remaining constant because again, if you're in a different situation, age group, risk profile, I think you probably would act differently. Um, maybe the best way to approach it is to give you kind of like what is our view of of the markets going ahead and what we're telling in general our our clients uh, to do basically. Okay, so I won't name any specific funds and stuff, but I'll give you kind of a general asset class uh, overview. Um, we think that the rate hikes in the US, um, it, they've, they've come to an end. Um, again, at most, maybe another 25 basis point, but we doubt so. Uh, so we think um, um, it's good, just going to go sideways. We know the market's actually pricing in, basically, um, um, uh, the Fed to cut rates basically in September. So prematurely versus that of what the Fed, has, Fed itself is communicating, which is until next year. But either way, it tells us basically we're at the near the end, if not already at the end of the tunnel, where then where rates are not going to go higher anymore. So when we have a situation where the next move is highly likely to be down, then we know that bond prices are going to go higher. I.e., rates come down, bond prices go up. Um, the big question, of course, is where in the bond markets because the bond market is not homogeneous. It's it's made out of very different type of bonds, um, and so we think that basically the high grade bonds are, are where you want to be because if we are going to a recession. You don't want to be in high yield because, again, your default risk is going to be very high. And you potentially don't want also to be in sovereigns in the U.S., basically, if they are going to issue more bonds and, and so on and so forth. So probably the sweet spot is is the high-grade uh, high grade bonds, corporate bonds. You know. So that's one place where, where we think uh, uh, clients can start picking up some 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 um, exposure. Uh, we think Go is also another one. Um, it's it's up for a reason. Um, it's it's go is either um, go used to be following what we call a very strong negative correlation with real rates. Uh, that correlation was very very strong for some for not say for some reason, but that correlation broke about six months to nine months ago, and go has been going up despite the fact that um, uh, real rates were going higher, which ought not to be the case. So whenever you have that kind of situation. You ask yourselves, 
what's driving this this metal higher despite the fact that historically it should be lower um, and of course the answer is there's a lot of physical gold buying by central banks and such and we think that will continue and so gold moving above its uh, all-time high now i think is that's 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 our our view so we're asking clients um, some go in your portfolio is good plus the fact that it could also act as an insurance in case things get worse uh, uh, in the economy and such. Yeah. Um, equities, we're not fair, we, have, we think there's another down leak for equities. Uh, we think that the US will lead the way. Uh, we think um, it hasn't priced in what we call earnings haven't priced in a recession, multiples haven't priced in a recession. 18 times PE is not a recession type of multiple. 200, um, um, uh, $220 earnings per share is not a, you haven't priced in a recession yet. So when when things get priced in, we think um, the S&P probably has another 10, 15, maybe even 20% downside from about 4,000 now to about 3,002 or 3,004. So so the way to play equities is not to go in now um, because when the S&P 500 falls, I think it's going to drag down everybody else. But the way to play it basically is to go in dollar cost averaging from now onwards. Now. So you're starting to pick up. And so lump sum for uh, high-grade bonds, probably lump sum for gold, but uh, what we call um, uh, dollar cost averaging for 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 uh, equities uh, that that would be the way i would i would play and i would kind of like allocate that amount that you just mentioned into these three buckets uh so, so to say uh, yeah yeah very interesting mrs sunny and Han, i think the previous session we also talked very briefly uh close to the end of the session about crypto right and and the the sweet spot the comfortable percentage that everyone should have uh the figure was like one percent you mentioned right well, it's more of a case of, uh, again, you need to do the same for me as you did for me. Ah, uh, yeah. Lah. Okay, uh, no financial advice. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if you are, you know, uh, if you believe in portfolio theory, right, and you believe in all the good stuff around Markowitz and, and CapM, etc., right, you would be foolish, right? And, you know, I, I, there are three letters after my name, but, you know, uh, whoever is learned in this, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, business should be doing these kind of studies around hey like this is an asset class cryptocurrency which is has significant negative correlation has super high volatility and uh, uh, sorry negative correlation with many asset classes including equities bonds gold etc uh, has super high volatility and, uh, and and has proven itself to have significant growth potential due to increasing adoption uh, um, uh, um, and, and potential disruption of uh, capital markets, not not specifically financial services, but capital markets. Then you'll be considering crypto as as a genuine asset class within any portfolio, right? So I I really mean any portfolio. And then how much is the next question, right? And how much is purely sorry is highly dependent on your own risk appetite. So if you are the most conservative person in the world, you still should have some crypto because having some maybe. Uh, somewhere in the 1% to 2% range of your entire portfolio will actually reduce your portfolio volatility because of the negative correlation with bonds, equities, uh, properties, gold, etc., commodities, right? Because the, uh, uh, for those of you who, who, who learn this stuff, negative correlation means when, when, stuff, when, when some stuff goes down, some stuff goes up, which balances out your portfolio and keeps your portfolio volatility actually lower. So you actually have to take less risk if you have a little bit of tiny bit, 1% to 2% uh, uh, crypto in your portfolio. If you are the most conservative investor, and I say investor, not saver, 
then if you're a higher risk kind of investor or you prefer you want to take high risk high returns uh, you can stomach a little higher volatility you can go up the risk curve with a higher percentage of crypto right so you have somewhere between five uh, at most 10 uh, wouldn't go given the volatility i uh, wouldn't go beyond 10 uh, but let's say you're a young person you've got 30 years to retirement right you can take the volatility a little higher than a retiree uh, um, uh, you, you 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 ask any kind of investment analyst financial analyst do the numbers around uh, 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 crypto in a diversified portfolio you'll see that the stats are just ridiculously you should have some right and and for me that's kind of uh, it's it's a very financial uh, a statement, sorry, a, a, a financial theory statement, and it, it works out in practice as well. So I, I, I don't know if I got a bit too technical there. Hopefully, uh, uh, you understood, Shinji. If, if it's too technical, hopefully you can explain it in a way which is not too technical. Don't it? Because those people who don't understand it, right, we want to make sure it's not financial advice. Like, and if they don't understand it, it's entirely fine. So <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, 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 should, it should be okay. It should be okay. Um. Mr. Sunny, same thoughts. Uh, 1-2% crypto allocation within a portfolio. Is it wise or unwise? Again, slapping in the not financial advice thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, in, in, in Malaysia, I was just to also uh, clarify that uh, we have a sister company, a subsidiary in Malaysia, uh, which basically um, has a tie-up with one of the digital exchanges in Malaysia. And therefore, we are also um, uh, we are referring our clients to to that digital exchange to add some uh, uh, cryptocurrencies into their portfolio. Uh, our general advice for for clients, basically, and this is <clears throat> when I say general, it's basically in the US. Uh, they are also the financial advisors. They are doing the same thing, basically about one um, to five percent uh, into crypto into your into the client's portfolio. Um, you see, basically, at one to five, even though you have volatility which is sky high, um, it's really not going to do a lot of damage if it goes the opposite direction. I mean, you lose one to five percent of your portfolio. If your portfolio every year makes ten percent, um, you basically you just end up making half of ten rather than you know it doesn't it doesn't hurt you basically like. But if it if it goes in your direction basically it, it, it adds on to 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 that it sweetens up your returns. Um, so when we have very very high volatility or very volatile investments, what uh, we tend to do is we tend to position size it. Uh, bring down that exposure to 5%, bring down exposure to 3%, sometimes even 1% because volatility is very high. You know, you do the math. Something that you have basically 5% exposure, if it goes up by 30%, well, that's only 1.5%. It's equivalent to you having an equity exposure of 50% and the equity exposure goes up by 3%. It's also 1.5%. So, so both give you 1.5%. Uh, but because of that volatility, both have different type of um, um, overall allocation or exposure. So um, position sizing is important when, you de- when you're dealing with assets that have very high volatility. So we do, we do actually um, um, recommend that clients put a little bit of, of, of that in their portfolio. I mean, fundamentally, there are reasons for it, and I don't know whether we're, gonna, we're not going to go into it this time around, but uh, we do believe in that asset class. Mm, okay. Um, again, this, uh, this, these are just the opinions of these people over here, not financial advice, guys. Um, 
right now we are transitioning to the Q&A session. Actually, we have transitioned to the Q&A session for the past 15-20 minutes already. Uh, for those of you guys who are in the audience, if you would like to step up, talk to these experts over here, you are more than welcome. Just a request to be the speaker and then after that, I will prove you guys shortly. Uh, if you're a bit afraid to step up, you can also send us a DM, the Futurist, uh, ask your questions, and then after that, we will ask the speakers as well. So uh, we have like a couple of questions, I think two or three questions from the public. I think the first one is, what is the effect to the employment cycle if the retirement age is increased? I mean, some industry may find it hard to climb the corporate ladder. Oh, this is a bit of a technical question. Han, what do you think about this? Yeah, Ken, I think that's a very, very common uh, common question, right? When it comes to, um, short, uh, quote unquote, letting the old fogies work longer means young, young, younger people cannot get <laughs> on the ladder. Um, <laughs> I think uh, the, those, those, those uh, concerns are very justified. They, they are very relevant. Um, the way to manage it is in two ways, right? Number one, uh, you do it gradually. You don't just go one time, hey, 60, next, next year, 65, right? You go, okay, tell you what, you, you telegraph it ahead of time. You say, over the next 10 years, we're going to increase it to 65 and we're going to do it in batches, right? So we, we won't just shock the system. And this, is, this comes from kind of long-term planning, right? And then you explain the reasons why, right? Everything we discussed before around uh, uh, longevity, around uh, productivity, around uh, pensions crisis, all that. But then one thing I want to add, I guess, to, to add more flavor to the discussion uh, and to hopefully answer the, the questioner's question is that uh, I don't think that's going to be a big, big, big issue given where the world is going demographically and specifically Malaysia demographically. I think uh, just nice actually you asked this question because if you look at today's uh, uh, releases from uh, DOSM, Department of Statistics Malaysia, uh, you see that, yeah, there's a little bit of increase in birth this year. But, you know, Malaysian babies are not being born uh, at the same rate as they were 20 years ago. I think the peak for Malaysian baby born is the early 2000s or late 90s. Lots and lots of Malaysian babies being born and they're actually a lot less today than they were 20 years ago. So actually, we are having less and less young people into the workforce. So age alone, let's talk about age alone. Let's not talk about skills and, and technical qualifications and underemployment, all that stuff. Let's talk about uh, addressing the question of age alone. Old people will affect the young people's jobs. I think uh, uh, given where the workforce is headed, that's number one, do it gradually, so no shocks. Number two, demographically, I think young people should be quite safe la, because uh, uh, there's less less young people coming on the workforce every year from, from kind of now. From now onwards, there'll be less and less because the peak of, of, of young people being born, babies being born was in the early 2000s for Malaysia. And it's been dropping since, and, it's, and that is a separate problem. But hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, I think you've answered the question perfectly. Uh, and it's also occurring to China, right? Uh, they previously implemented a policy for, I think, per family, they only allow one baby. Then now they decided to scrap it because of the population declining. Um, yeah, so Mr. Sunny, same question. Uh, effects on the employment cycle if the retirement age will be increased. Um, okay, so yeah, quite quite similar to what Hans has. I'll share with you what we're doing in, in our in our company. The management roughly age-wise 50-ish around this year. So we probably have another 10-odd years um, of, of being in the management group. So we're starting to talk about uh, succession. We're starting to groom um, uh, guys under us 
so that uh, because tenures is very fast. So by the time we kind of so-called inverted commas retire, um, they would probably take over the helms of, of the various departments. Um, like for example, the department, I mean the investment department and such. So that's really uh, being being uh, um, spoken of. Um, well, what will happen to us, um, you know, um, potentially we could even move into advisory roles, you know, senior advisors or, you know, uh, se senior mentors and stuff like that, uh, those those things. Um, but but I do understand the, the worry. Um, I think in certain organizations, uh, again, I'm not trying to pick on, 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 on the civil service and such, but in certain organizations, it may be a much more an issue. Um, but in the public, private sector itself, I would assume that markets will dictate um, that um, as long as you have value, you'll be there, regardless of your age. But once you do not um, uh, contribute to shareholder value, profitability and such, then automatically um, uh, the market will sort it out and, 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 and the best person will be there regardless of age. Mm. Okay, all right. Uh, the next question from uh, the audience would be, wait, let me just double check. By the way, guys, again, if you guys have any questions, you can either step up to the space and uh, I'll prove you to be a speaker or just DM us the questions. Uh. We're doing a Q&A session right now. Uh, I've heard that the property sector has reached its peak and people are advising to start buying houses even when the OPR is high. Are there any opinions on this? Wait, I think his question is phrased a bit wrongly. Uh. I've heard that the property sector has reached its peak and are going down despite this, uh, even when the OPI is high. So any opinions is this? Any opinions on this? Ooh, uh, real estate, Han. Have we, I think we haven't explored this before, la, but uh, yeah, I would be curious to hear your thoughts. Hmm. Good one. Um, I, I was just asked to speak a bit on real estate a couple of days ago, actually last weekend at one of those uh, property conventions. Uh, but what I'll say about this is very simple, which is there are a few factors at play. Uh, as OPR goes up, you can expect house prices to have some pressure, right? You think about it, uh, two, two years ago, you want to buy a house, uh, you're going to pay a lot less in your home loan per month than you are today. Uh, uh, in some cases, you know, 20% more than you, are, uh, than you were two, two years ago. Right. So that implies that affordability has gone down, right? Because uh, you, you could earn the same or slash a bit higher, but yet you, your affordability is lower, right? Across the board due to this OPR, you know, sudden rate hikes. Uh, obviously, the impact for us is less than somewhere like the UK or the States, where, where they've gone from kind of zero-ish to five-ish, five right? And that, that's huge impact. But for us, you know, there are similar impacts around... Uh, uh, OPR specifically, right? And OPR goes up, affordability drops down, right? Because same rate, same salary, you can afford less because your installments are higher for the same amount of loan. Therefore, whatever you could afford last time, your loan amount will be lower. Therefore, you can afford a cheaper house. You can only afford a cheaper house than you did last time. So naturally, there's there's pressure on on house prices. So uh, I'll be watching out for that. But I think. Uh, uh, other than OPR, the, 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 the broader sense is whether or not Malaysia can be a attractive uh, home ownership place. Because, I mean, we, Malaysians, we complain about home prices, but, uh, you know, but if you look at property prices over the last 10 years, they haven't really gone up that much. And I know I'm going to get shot by everyone in this room for saying that. But, I mean, objectively, right, 
we had massive home price increases from 2009 to 2014, like that. And since then, it's been much more moderated, right? The problem the last nine years has not so much been home prices. It's been really incomes not increasing enough. Um, so that's kind of uh, uh, causing that problem. But if you look at it, property in Malaysia, not that exciting in the last nine years. It has been increasing in pockets in places, but overall, really not exciting. Uh, uh, when is it going to get exciting again? I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, I wouldn't bet against it, but yeah, I'm not going to put all my money on Malaysian property market suddenly becoming exciting. Uh, 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 but for me, the best thing to look at is just look at uh, uh, demand supply, right? How much overhang is there in Malaysia for property? When you see that start dropping, then you know, okay, uh, property is going to start getting exciting because finally the overhang that's been Overhang means unsold property. Uh, the overhang that's been on with us for the last kind of five, six years is starting to abate. When that happens, then that might be a good time to think about it. But for me, other than that, uh, uh, I don't have a specific view. Lah. Mm, okay. Uh, thank you so much, Han, for your points over there. Mr. Sunny, same, uh, same question. Lah. What do you think about the Malaysian property market uh, after this OPI? Well, I, I don't have... Um... A, a very intimate kind of uh, knowledge of the uh, Malaysian market. But I can tell you roughly what my views are in terms of very general type of, 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 of overview. And I think Hans mentioned, for example, property prices in Malaysia rose um, from what, 2009 or 2008 all the way to 2014. And then after that, it became stagnant and such. So I think what will happen is this. Um, as OPR increases, um, as the economy slows, um, as people find that you know um, discretionary income because of inflation also gets 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 um, uh, squeezed and such, inevitably um, the property market will come off. Um, if you've bought a property two three years ago, you've max maxed out your discretionary um, amount that you can have. Uh, you basically are now stuck with probably higher loan, stagnant property. Your property price is stagnant. You're feeling the pressure. So maybe that group will start to sell. Um, and, and that would be the so-called supply side for, 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 for the property sector. So how far it goes down really de now depends on the demand side. And, and we have to remember that property prices have increased quite a lot. And anybody sitting probably uh, had bought their property in you know, 08, 09 or even before that, they're still sitting in fairly good um, um, fairly good so-called um, buffers um, so they either won't sell or in fact they may be able to refinance and get some money and, 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 and start coming into the property market so it's really a bit of a strange situation not say strange but it's a situation where um, you would think headline wise we're in a world where leverage is so high rates are so high um, when you add those two things together, you would think that basically we would have a property crash. But effectively, we're not actually seeing a crash, but we're seeing kind of like a, a, a controlled demolition in a, in a way. Uh, I just can give you an example of the US itself. Um, while the people who came in late to the property game are now selling aggressively because they're sitting on losses and, and so on and so forth, um, there are a whole bunch of them who just basically just don't sell. So the supply actually is not that much because if you're sitting on a property and you've refinanced your property a couple of years ago at almost virtually zero interest rates or one or two percent, 
you took out a 30 year mortgage at zero you're not going to sell because you don't want to let go of your mortgage which you've, which you've locked in at zero to one percent or two percent that low mortgage that ultra low generational low mortgage so a lot of supply is not coming onto the market at the same time um, to push property prices lower so we're having this kind of situation where um, we're not seeing that crash uh, 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 environment uh, but potentially a, a fairly orderly decline, so to say. Of course, this is all speaking in general. We could have certain pockets which have gone up so much that it will come down a lot. But in general, we're seeing a little bit of precarity in terms of, of this kind of situation, which I suspect will not cause massive crashes like we saw in 08. We must remember also, if in order to see a crash, the banking sector has to freeze up. Um, and 08 was that situation where even if you wanted to buy a property, no one was going to lend you money to buy property. So that is a situation where we will see a crash. Mm. All right. Okay. So uh, I wouldn't say there's nothing to worry about, but there's uh, not too much to worry about just yet. Okay. Uh, we are taking about one or two more questions. So again, if you guys have any questions, now is the best opportunity. Uh, so the second last question, I guess. Regarding the recent OPR hike, uh, we are now almost back to normal. Actually, we're already back to normal. We're back to pre-pandemic levels of 3%. Um, are there any general insights for our equity market? Ooh. So first, we talked about the international markets. Then we talked about the local property market. And now we're talking about the Busa market. Uh, I think, Han, you're not too excited about the Busa market. Lah, but let's just track back there uh, with the recent OPR hike. What do you think about the Malaysian market? Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, tough to give one in tough to give a whole overview in a couple of minutes, but I'll try my best. Um, OPR goes up, you will start to see uh, some movement on the banking side, right? Um, uh, what I mean by that is, you know, banks will start to 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 start re-optimizing their books. They had a rough three years where they had to had to manage a sudden down downshift in rates, then suddenly back up again. So it's been quite disruptive for them earnings wise, but you know, banks are will be banks now. Uh, they do best when things are stable to squeeze more money out of us. So I would say, if anything, banks, uh, you know, sense crisis, uh, nobody can predict a crisis, but without a crisis, I think they will continue doing what they, they love to do, which is squeeze money from us, therefore making money from themselves. Therefore, if we want to not get squeezed too much, we should try and be a shareholder of a bank. Right? I'm not saying specifically which bank, but just generally banking. Um, uh, I think most most companies are uh, are in Malaysia. Sorry, the Bursa. Sorry, most Bursa listed ones. Uh, 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 sorry, not most. A uh, majority actually this year are predicting earnings contraction, which is a very interesting one, uh, given that you know GDP is about to grow four or five percent. Uh, so interesting why they are projecting that. So it's worth worth having a look to see individually which stocks are projecting what. Right, uh, you might be able to pick up some good gems if you do that. Uh, so yeah, in general, uh, I don't have a that positive view on on certain sectors. Right, uh, um, property being one, uh, specifically property developers, uh, telcos being one, given the uncertainty around the telco industry at the moment. Um, but you know, some sectors should be good. Right, uh, I mentioned the banks. Uh, I mentioned. Uh, 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 I did mention broader financials so my insurers uh, with, with rates being stable it allows them to do what they do best which is to squeeze more money from us lah. 
So I think that's kind of where I'll go with that. Uh, can't say too much. Uh, quite a, a big question. Not enough time. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's where I'll stop. Yeah, we'll definitely do another session sooner or later to you know, tackle this uh, broad question. Mr. Sunny, also a similar question. Insights on the Malaysian market. Also, Han mentioned just now about the banks making a larger profit. Do you agree with this, with the recent OPR hike? Uh, bank, well, banks always do well. Uh, or, I mean, the net interest income or, or, or interest income of banks do rise when, when, when interest rates go up. Uh, but again, it really depends on, on their ability to price and, and, and the overall economy and such. So probably, I think banks will probably do much better than they've been doing the past couple of years when rates were almost at zero. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I will tackle the Malaysian market outlook from a very helicopter, helicopter view. Um, in part because I don't have the intimate um, knowledge on a on a on a local share basis and stuff stuff la. Um, we think that basically this next cycle when things pick up again, um, that fund flows will start moving away from uh, developed markets to emerging markets. Um, they've always there's always been this cyclical kind of a shift between. DM and EM over the years and, and these cycles tend to last for a couple of years not, they're just not one two year cycles they tend to be four, five, six, seven years if you remember back then you know we we, we were doing very well um, um, I think in 2000 to about 2008 um, that was the emerging market up cycle then followed by the developed markets up cycle thereafter and so and, and the developed market once has lasted about 10 over years itself so we think that basically um, when the dust settles um, and the next round of, of, of upturn, uptick uh, takes place, um, investors are going to favor um, emerging markets. Um, because of that and because of the uh, prevalence of uh, prevalence or prevalence of ETFs, um, a lot of investors are going to invest via, let's say, for example, MSCI Asia ETF. Uh, uh, emerging mar- MSCI emerging market ETF and ASEAN ETF and so on. So maybe not not so Malaysia probably will benefit not directly per se that oh Malaysia is a great place to be invested in. Okay, I hope it is, but I'm just saying. Um, but it could actually benefit from funds flowing via the ETF because once money goes into an ETF, it gets automatically allocated to the various components. While Malaysia is not a very large component, but it's still, it's not a very big market. So any small amount is probably quite large also. So I think it could benefit, um, um, but not from the micro perspective where people are coming in specifically for, for Malaysia's attractiveness, maybe. I hope it is again, but I'm not sure. Uh, but I think higher chance that it may gain from the spillover of uh, shifting away from DM developed markets to to emerging markets. Yeah, and you know that brings us to the end of our session. That's all part of the Q and A, and uh, really thank you so much, you guys, for joining us tonight, listening to the session. Hopefully, you guys have learned something. Uh, thank you to, to the speakers for joining as well. Allow me to just quickly summarize everything that we've covered tonight, especially the main topics. Uh, so first of all, we started a session with talking about uh, whether whether the government should raise the retirement age or not. Uh, this is to tackle the alarmingly low EPF savings of Malaysians. And the speakers proposed that, okay, 
better to increase the full withdrawal age of EPF first to make it synchronize with the retirement age from 55 to 60. Next, do a tiered system to increase the employer's contribution. Contribute more to the poor and less to the rich. So that will kind of, I would say, narrow the EPF savings of Malaysians. So not, na not narrow, I mean, increase the EPF savings of Malaysians. Bank Nagara Malaysia's recent OPR hike 25 basis points, bringing it to 3% pre-pandemic level. Uh, the experts believe that it should stay this way for the rest of the year. Good news for those people who still have outstanding mortgage loans. Um, but at most, we are only pricing in one more rate hike. Okay, so you, you should be ready for, you know, in case one more rate hike. And obviously, this is bad news for borrowers, good news for savers. Lah. You can expect banks to, you know, do more fixed deposit promos in the upcoming weeks or months, maybe up to 4.5 or even 4.75% per annum. ASB, ASM, experts believe that the money can work for you better elsewhere. Obviously, not financial advice. Don't go back today and then withdraw everything out of ASB, ASM. Okay, so this is just uh, our thoughts. Because ASB, ASM, majority of their funds, they are made up of equities in Malaysia. And you might as well diversify your funds to uh, overseas and other assets because the equity side has already been covered by EPF. And we also asked the question on if you have money, the theoretical question, what will you do with it? Um, the experts agree that the time frame is extremely important. Okay, if you have a short time frame, then a money market fund could work for you. Maybe a fixed deposit could work for you as well. If you have a longer time frame, if you are younger, consider higher risk options. These include overseas assets, bonds, crypto, gold, etc., etc. And the sweet spot for the amount, for the percentage that you can consider to allocate into crypto, not should, uh, can, is about 1% to 2% because that will uh, reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio and it's only upside from there. Okay, so hopefully that kind of gives you guys a good wrap-up, a good overview of what we talked about tonight. If you miss anything important during the earlier part of the session, don't worry. It's entirely recorded. Right after I end the space, you can re-listen to the recording how many times you want also can. Okay, if you like Mr. Sunny's voice, you can listen to it many, many times, replay it constantly. Um, but uh, let me just uh, put the last words to the speakers tonight. Han, any last words for tonight's session? Um, just that a couple of things which I repeat, I guess, which is I know changes can be quite scary, especially when it affects you. OPR going up, uh, uh, ASB uh, financing going up, ASB dividends going down, uh, uh, EPF looking very small, uh, your own EPF balance looking very scary. But for me, uh, take heart. If you make changes today, today is the best day to do it, right? If not yesterday, then today. And these changes you make today to your own personal finances will really compound itself over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years and make a big, big difference. Right? Small change today, huge impact to your life, especially when you're aiming for financial freedom. So that's what I say. Uh, as always, like uh, I try to do a lot of commentary on what things are happening in Malaysia, so give me a follow if you can. Uh, I'm at O-O-I-H-A-N-N. Um, if you find me interesting, if not, it's okay. Hopefully, hope to see you guys at the next, at the next uh, Twitter space. Uh, if I'm invited again, thanks again, Shinji, for hey. uh, the the invite. Uh, don't worry, man. It's pretty much secured already. I I I try to do it once a month, lah, and uh, I try not to take up too much of your time. But we generally can expect one session a month with uh, both of you guys, uh, because really there's a lot of knowledge shared over here. And uh, just to really repay Hans' kindness for all the knowledge that he shared, 
just give him a follow, guys. Tap on his profile. It takes only two seconds. Uh, follow him if you find the session tonight useful. Mr. Sunny, last words for tonight's session? Um, well, okay. I would say basically if some of these circumstances um, currently impact you, um, you know, all of a sudden OPR increases, you find yourself struggling to, 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 to meet some of the payments because of the higher installments because of that. Um, you know, um, your ASB financing now is you're, 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 you're in a situation where you don't know where, you know, you're at a point where you may want to, to discard it and, and, and get rid of it and such. Well, it actually shows you that um, some of the financial related stuff that you're doing um, may not have been well thought through. Okay. Again, I'm not trying to point, point fingers at anybody. Um, and you may need some help either from a licensed financial advisor or someone who knows very well or even yourself doing up more readings and such. Because um, a lot of time when you're investing whether, and also taking up loans and stuff, um, you tend to always think of the returns but less so of the risks. And we are really in an environment now where the risk is showing up everywhere. And therefore, if you start to feel the pain, that means you may not have given enough thought on the risk side. Um, so, the, that, so take it as a lesson for the future. So every time you do something, you always need to take into account not only the good side of it, but the potential downside of it. So that when these kind of situations happen, you don't find yourself under pressure to do things, to, to, to sell off a certain asset forcefully at a, at a low price fire sale and so on and so forth yeah so i think it's a good experience for many of of, of, of the audience who are who i can see are quite young and such but i think that would be a takeaway which i would uh, give for tonight yeah fantastic Mr. Sunny. and i think really that uh, wraps up our session for tonight and um, for those of you who have missed our previous session we've done like many many sessions with mr sunny with han also uh, this is actually the fourth session with Han. I think uh, the sixth or seventh session with Mr. Sunny already. And each of these sessions, right, the speakers, they've shared a ton of knowledge, I tell you. And fortunately, all of these are recorded and it's in our Spotify. So, okay, head over, head over to our profile while you're at it. Probably give us a follow as well. Uh, click on the link tree and then you'll be able to see uh, our Spotify link over there. And then you can listen to all the previous recordings with these two knowledgeable speakers and obviously at the same time make sure to follow mr sunny and han as well okay thank you so much guys for joining tonight's session hope you guys learned something i'll see you guys in the next one bye han bye mr sunny good night good night